Good afternoon. We welcome all who are worshiping with us today. It's good to see such a large number of people here, especially in those in connection with the double baptism. We also like to say welcome to those who are joining us online. Um, may we all be spiritually fed with the preaching of the word this morning. This morning, we welcome Pastor Tim to our pulpit again. There are a few announcements. First of all, Council and Consistory hope to meet on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Also, the congregation is reminded that we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week at the in the 2 o'clock service. That's on January the 15th. Also, Brother Ben Gelderman has requested an attestation and has been granted. His attestation is to the Edmonton Emmanuel Church. We understand that Brother Ben has already left us, but we would like to say thank you to Ben for all his efforts on the audio and video team that he has done here in Sardis, and we wish him the Lord's blessing in Edmonton. There is a coffee social in between the two church services, and everyone is invited to uh, spend some time here after this first service. And just a reminder, our second service starts at 4.30 p.m. Also, there is a book presentation to be given, so we ask everybody to be aware of that right, after, right following the, this first service. And we'd like to welcome Reverend Tim to lead us. Good afternoon, everybody. What a privilege to be with you today to worship our truly awesome God together. And uh, a special welcome to all those who are here for the baptism uh, of the, the baby of Jaden and Brittany Kuick and also of Kelsey and Terry Scutta. Uh, please rise uh, for our call to worship. Our call to worship for this afternoon comes from 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 to 11. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. As we come to worship this awesome, holy, glorious God, uh, we come only with the utmost humility, and so we come uh, every week again confessing our dependence. So congregation, where does our help come from? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin our worship service by singing together uh, a song calling us to praise our God uh, who defeats our enemies and goes before us. We'll sing that from Psalm uh, 68, stanzas 1 and 2.
We just sang a beautiful song together about our God and his justice and holiness and how he deserves to be praised. Uh, But in it, there's something uh, that we must realize is a little bit peculiar because it talks about our God and we celebrate our God uh, who will vanquish the wicked, we sang, uh, and that the just can sing with a joyful voice. And so we read today, as every Sunday again, God's law at the beginning of our service. And that's to remind us by reading this law that by nature, we actually shouldn't be able to count ourselves with the just at all, should we? As we read God's law, we're convicted. We realize that by nature, we're with the wicked. We break God's law all the time. And so by reading God's law, as we find it in the Ten Commandments, this Sunday as we do each week again, uh, we're reminded of our own weakness, our our own unholiness, our own desperate need for someone better, someone who we'll hear about in the preaching today and every Sunday again. We we realize our desperate need for Jesus Christ because in him we can find forgiveness for our sins, but more than just forgiveness, we can find the true holiness and righteousness that we need to be acceptable before God. We receive it from Christ by faith. Let's read the Ten Commandments together from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or daughter or male servant or female servant or livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife for his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So far, our reading of God's law. And again, this should remind us of our sin and unworthiness, and our desperate need of a Savior. And so in response, let's sing together from Psalm 110, which is a psalm predicting God sending exactly that, uh, a Savior who could pay for our sins and make us just in God's sight. We'll sing stanzas 2, 3, and 6.
Before we open up God's word together to read our text for this afternoon, uh, let's come before the Lord in prayer and we'll ask him to bless our worship this afternoon. Let's pray. Awesome God and dear Father, Lord, you rule us with your authority and your might. And you do and you will show your power and your dominion to all. Lord, we ask that you'll show your power and dominion, first of all, in us. Because, Lord, you are a great and a good king. We thank you that in spite of our weakness and our constant sinfulness, that you are a God who is willing to fight for us. And in Christ, as we'll hear today, you did fight for us. You fought to free us from our sin and to free us from Satan and bring us back into your fatherly hands. Lord, as we sang, now you call us, too, to join Christ in his fight. By your word that we'll open together now, make us wholly glad and willing to answer your call to fight against sin and the devil, to answer your call to holiness, to fight not in our strength, but on Christ, to rely on Christ and in his strength. We know apart from him, we can do nothing. Grant now that the word of Christ would dwell in our hearts richly. We ask, Lord, that you will teach and admonish us as we teach and admonish also one another in all wisdom. We ask that you will teach us with words and with spiritual songs and hymns and psalms. We ask that we might praise you with thankfulness in our hearts to you. In Jesus' name alone we pray these things. Amen. Our scripture reading for this afternoon comes from Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. And so the plan now, now that New Year's has passed, is to start a sermon series on Mark. And it will be split up a little bit, but the idea is to go through Mark in nine weeks, and it will ultimately end up with the end of Mark at Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we'll begin our way through Mark today. We'll start reading at the beginning of Mark, and then our text will be from verses 9 to 13 of Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one, or comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's how far we'll read from now. And now in connection with the rest of our text, which we'll read in a moment, let's sing together about God's care for his people uh, as we see it in Psalm 91, stanzas 4 and 5. Standing as we sing.
I don't think we usually stand there, but is it my notes? And I think we, send, we sing better when we stand anyway. So thanks for uh, doing that with me. We'll turn now to our text for this afternoon. Mark 1, verses 9 to 13. Mark 1, 9 to 13. In those days, the days that John the Baptist had appeared and was baptizing people uh, for repentance from their sins and having them confess them, in those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So far, our reading of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had an epiphany? An epiphany is a sort of a eureka moment. It's when finally and suddenly and dramatically often, uh, you recognize something for what it really is. And if you looked at your calendar, or maybe on your phone or on your wall this past week, you might have noticed that many people, they celebrated Epiphany on Friday. It's a religious holiday in the church calendar, and it's connected with a couple events in Jesus' life. A couple eureka moments, you could say. A couple dramatic times when people finally, suddenly, began to understand just who this Jesus that, that we've been hearing about, especially around Christmas, just who he was. The, the first event it's connected with, Epiphany is, is with uh, the wise men visiting Jesus. They come to this little child, and these wise men with all kinds of riches, they worship this child. They realize he's the Messiah. They realize he's worthy of worship, and they give him their finest gifts. So that's one eureka moment. And then the other one is the one that we just read about. Because you have to remember that after Jesus was born, then some great events happened. And then for about 30 years, seemingly almost nothing. I don't know about you, but this past week, thinking about that, it sort of blew my mind. Thinking about how Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, just dwelt among us on earth for about 30 years, just going about life, becoming a carpenter. But then, this. Jesus starts his public ministry with his baptism, and we get a eureka moment, where Jesus shows so powerfully what he's like and who he is. Up until this point, Jesus seemed a lot like an ordinary man. Yet in this passage, he reveals himself to us as our Savior, the one who came to join our ranks in a cosmic battle. The one who came to fight for your soul and mine and to set us free. So in this passage at the beginning of John, we see the battle begins. We see it begins in a strange way. It begins, first of all, in the water, and then secondly, in the wilderness. First of all, this battle begins in the water. As you may have noticed, Mark does not like to beat around the bush at all, does he? I don't know how familiar you are uh, with the other gospel writers. There are three other gospel writers. Just imagine for a second you were supposed to write a biography of someone. You're supposed to write the account of someone's life, or especially of Jesus' life. Where do you think you would start? 
I think most of us would start maybe like Matthew or like Luke. You start with Jesus' birth. Doesn't that make a lot of sense? And Matthew and Luke, you'll see if you look to those passages as well, the beginning of those books, you'll see that they start with long genealogies, tracing where Jesus came from way into the past. Matthew goes back to the time of Abraham. Luke goes back to the time of Adam and Eve. Uh, John, in his gospel, he goes back even further. You remember where he goes? In the beginning was the Word. He goes back to all of eternity. But Mark isn't quite like that. He doesn't like to get lost in the weeds. He likes to jump right into the story. And we can see that in this passage. He quotes quickly one text from the Old Testament about John the Baptist, not even Jesus. And then suddenly, in verse 4, a strange word, John appeared. John was just there. Specifically, John the Baptist appeared baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So he was getting people ready for the coming Messiah. And he was saying that you should turn from your sins, do a 180, turn from your way of life now, turn back to God and get ready because the Messiah is coming. And John the Baptist says, though he himself is a great prophet, he wouldn't even be worthy to untie the strap of the Messiah's sandals. And Mark mentions this in verse 7, and he doesn't really keep us in suspense, does he? Just two verses later, Jesus is there. We tell with John the Baptist, people were coming from all over Judea and Jerusalem, the surrounding area. They were coming to hear him preach, and they were coming to release their burdens. They were coming to confess the sin that was weighing on them. They were coming to be baptized and get the symbol of their sin being washed away from them. You can imagine this crowd forming around John, bustling around, trying to see him, trying to hear him. You can imagine many people hearing the message, being convicted of their sins, and lining up, waiting for their turn to be baptized, to have their sins symbolically washed away. But then we come to this story, and one man comes from much further away than all the rest. He is about 30 years old. He's a carpenter from a tiny little town no one ever would have heard of in Galilee. You might remember from a few weeks ago, a part of the country that was really looked down upon, looked at as being not truly Jewish, not truly holy, but quite sinful. And this man, he simply comes, and he gets in line with the rest. And then finally, it's this man's turn to be baptized. And he wades out to John in the River Jordan. And simply, Mark says in verse 9, he was baptized by John. Doesn't seem like much of a story, does it? We need to realize this should blow our minds. Because if you think about this even for a second, this does not seem to make any sense at all. So you have to picture these people lining up, confessing their sins, pouring out their hearts, saying all they've done wrong, all the ways they've offended their neighbors, all the ways they've offended God. They confess and they're baptized and forgiven. And then Jesus gets in line. This can't be. It doesn't make any sense. And we know from the other gospel accounts that even John the baptized realized that something very strange was going on here. We're told in other gospels that when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. If you were here last week in the afternoon, Glenn explained to us about how the Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world, he couldn't have a blemish. He couldn't have sins to confess. He had to be perfectly spotless and holy. 
Likewise, we read in Matthew chapter 3 that when Jesus shows up, then John the Baptist, he, he, he resists. John the Baptist says, Jesus, I can't possibly baptize you. I can't give you the baptism of the repentance from sins and forgiveness because you simply don't have any sins. Instead, John says what hopefully most of us would say. Instead, John says, please, Jesus, I can't baptize you. You baptize me. Who am I to baptize you? You forgive my sins. I can't forgive yours. You have none. But Jesus insists that this is where his ministry needs to start, in the water. In Matthew 3, Jesus says he needs to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus needs to do this, first of all, for our sins to be forgiven, as we'll see in a moment, but he needs to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He needs to do this so his light might be absolutely blameless and perfect. And that's good news for us because that's what we need in a Savior. Someone who can take our sin and pay for it, yes, but someone who can make us worthy of blessing, worthy to go into God's presence and live with him forever. We need someone not only to pay for our sin, but to make us righteous, to give us his own righteousness, his own perfection instead. Because our God insists on innocence, but not just innocence. He insists on holiness and perfection and righteousness. As the old hymn says, you might be familiar with it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so... Jesus says to fulfill righteousness, this must be done. And so John, not really understanding, he obeys and he baptizes Jesus Christ. So we see here Jesus fulfilling righteousness, being perfect in our place. But more than that, we do see a picture of Jesus securing your innocence, my innocence, our forgiveness from sins as well. I hope it helps you, like it helped me a lot this past week, to think of Jesus' baptism in this way, in a way that I never really had thought of it before. As we'll hear later in our baptism form, uh, in the New Testament, baptism is connected with two major Old Testament events. I wonder if you can think of what those are, maybe off the top of your head, maybe if you've heard the form a number of times before. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul connects baptism with Israel walking through the Red Sea as the Egyptian army is destroyed by the waves behind them. And then in 1 Peter 3, Peter connects baptism with the flood at the beginning of the Old Testament. In the flood, there's miraculous salvation. Noah and his family are saved in the ark as the world beneath them is judged. And so here we have this confusing picture of baptism. On the one hand, a picture of mighty salvation by God's hands. But on the other hand, a picture of fierce judgment, God's holiness as well. And so imagine the picture of our text again. There's all kinds of people, all sorts, just like you and me. They're all having their sins washed in the river. You can imagine them going there with anger, with idolatry, with pride, with lust, with so many other types of sins, maybe even uh, adultery or murder or sins like that. These people are confessing every kind of sin imaginable, and they're having the great joy of seeing them symbolically washed off of them and down into the water, and receiving salvation. And then Jesus comes all the way from Galilee. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God arrives near the shore, and then he gets in to this symbolically filthy water. 
He insists to John, you need to baptize me with this water. You need to put this filthy water on me instead. So for us, for these people, this baptism is a beautiful picture of salvation. For Jesus, his baptism was something very different. The sinless Savior joins us sinners. He identifies with you and me and with our sin. He becomes sin for us. And for him, baptism will mean a fierce judgment. Jesus tells us this in Luke 12, verse 50. Jesus says, leading up to his betrayal and his torture and his crucifixion and death for your sins and mine. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What a picture we have of our Savior in this event. Jesus, the perfect man, comes. And he's willing to identify with us, willing to take on our sin himself and take our judgment himself so that we can receive a very different baptism, one that we celebrate today. Uh, A baptism uh, pointing towards signifying and sealing the washing away of our sins promised by Jesus Christ and his precious blood to all who believe in him. And so Jesus, we see here, is the one who was drowned in the sea so we might walk through on dry land. He's the one crushed by the flood so we might be saved on the ark. By Christ's sacrifice, we are perfectly innocent. Our sins are washed away, put on him and paid for in full. More than that, all who believe in Christ are righteous instead. All of us who believe in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation can rest in this beautiful truth I stumbled upon this past week. 2,000 years ago, God looked down and looked at Jesus Christ, his son, and he looked at him and saw him as if he had lived your life, as if he had lived my life, full of sin. And so, God crushed him. Jesus willingly paid for every one of our sins, paid in full, as though he was the one who constantly turned away from God and sinned. But now, by God's grace, God looks down at you and looks down at me as though we lived Jesus' life. How remarkable is that truth? What a gracious Savior we have. By God's grace, we have perfect innocence and perfect righteousness forever. And that's what we can remember when we look back on our own baptisms as well. We can remember uh, that those who believe in Christ, they have been said to be put to death with Christ. And we have a glorious new life with him as well. We're about to see this wonderful promise of forgiveness and righteousness for those who believe in Christ passed on to the next generation as well, aren't we? And Jaden and Brittany and Noah or, and uh, Terry and Kelsey, uh, you can teach Noah and Nolan this and call them to believe it and just receive this awesome washing as their own, this beautiful salvation in Jesus Christ. It's so astounding that God was willing to do this for us. And we can see here, it's not just Jesus Christ who is willing. Sometimes I think we have the temptation to split up the Trinity a little bit. And we think it was mostly Jesus who loves us. It was mostly Jesus who wants to save us. And maybe it was mostly God the Father who wanted to punish our sins. But we can't do that in this passage at all. Because Jesus, as Jesus does this incredible thing, identifying with us in our deepest sins, God the Father is acting too. And what does he do? We see in verse 10, as Jesus came up out of the water, 
Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here, by God the Father, heaven is ripped open. It's a dramatic word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. It means to rip something with force. It's only used one other time in Mark when Jesus dies and the four-inch-thick temple curtain separating the priest from God's presence, God's holiness, that temple curtain, it's grabbed as if by the top where God is on his side. It's ripped in two, bringing us back to God. Here, heaven is ripped open showing the beginning of a connection between us and God once again accomplished by Jesus Christ. And God the Father not only acts by tearing the heavens open, he speaks as well. He assures Jesus and he assures us in verse 11. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What strengthening words those would be for Jesus before he, or as he enters his ministry that will ultimately uh, result in his bitter death. The final baptism we just heard gave Jesus great distress until it was accomplished. Likewise, though, what a comfort those words are for us. God says, you are my son, my beloved son. I am pleased with you and I love you. He says it to Jesus. But how assured can you and I be that God the Father also loves us? Because this God, the Father, he was willing to give Jesus up so that you and I might live. There are many uh, Old Testament allusions in this portion of Scripture, this statement from God, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. But maybe one of the most impactful, at least for me, is the allusion to Genesis chapter 22. Maybe you know the story. That's when Abraham was called to sacrifice, to show his love for God by sacrificing the son that he loved so much. Of course, I hope you know God stopped him. He didn't want him to sacrifice his son. But God says in that passage, now I know you truly love me because you were willing to give up your son for me. God stopped Abraham. No one stopped God. God gave up his son for you, his dearly loved, beloved son, If he loved his son this much, how much does that mean he loves you and me? What a God we have. What a God. And that means not only does he love us, but in Christ, likewise, he is pleased with us. He grants us innocence, but more than that, he grants us righteousness as well. So God the Father, he's in on this battle plan to rescue us. God the Son is too. And finally, we see also the Holy Spirit is involved. The Holy Spirit descends from the torn heavens like a dove. And the Spirit fills and equips and anoints Jesus as the perfect prophet, priest, and king that we needed him to be to win the fight with sin and the devil and to bring us back to God. Brothers and sisters, there is good news that Jesus starts in the water. Good news that reinforcements have arrived and the Christ is here. And in his baptism, he's identified with you and me. He's He's joined our ranks And God the Father and the Spirit, too, have declared that they're on your side and mine for our salvation. So the battle's begun. It begins in the water. Then it begins in the wilderness. So we've seen the Savior, and now we get to see the enemy and the battleground. We're told in Acts that here at his baptism, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit 
elsewhere we hear, filled without measure. And he is also filled with great power. So what might you expect this warrior to do? This savior? We might expect him to go to Jerusalem. Or maybe even to go to Rome. A a place of great power, great authority. Somewhere he could show who he is. But instead in verse 12 we read something very different. And we get used to it, but it should take us off guard again. The spirit that's come upon Christ, immediately it drives him into the wilderness. What we see there is something crucial for our understanding of the whole book of Mark. It will come up time and time again in our series, I'm sure. Mark is jam-packed with action, with Jesus doing this and doing that and talking to these people, comforting these people, opposing those people. But here we get a picture behind the scenes of what Jesus has ultimately come to do, who he's ultimately come to fight. Right at the beginning of the gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we get to see that Jesus has come to wage a, a cosmic war. There's a cosmic battle going on here, and Jesus has stepped up to defend us and to save us. Not from the Romans or from any enemies of this world, as the Israelites actually expected at the time. And instead we read in 1 John 3 verse 8 why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, we read. Jesus came to destroy the devil and the damage he has done around us and inside of us. Already now, he started to root out our sin and ultimately he plans to root it out once and for all. And so Jesus begins this spiritual, ultimately spiritual battle in a very fitting way. Because he begins this battle in a sense the same way God's people Israel did. Israel, you remember, right? When they were delivered out of Egypt, what did they do? They ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in that time, they were tested and they failed. And they were tested and they failed, and they were tested, and they failed, and they needed someone who could do better. Uh, And Christ did come to be the better Israel. That's good news for us as well. God's people who are tested and we fail, are tested and we fail, tested and we fail. Jesus reveals himself to be the one who came to do what God's people should have done themselves. Christ came to perfectly trust and obey God in the wilderness. More than that, Jesus begins in, again, a really fitting way because he begins in sort of a comparable way to Adam and Eve did. Not so much in comparison, but more in contrast. Because we see here that Christ came into the wilderness, not just as the true and better Israel, but the true and better Adam as well. Think for a second about how you're tempted to sin or how Adam and Eve were tempted to sin. And then take a look at how Jesus or Satan here tries to get Jesus to sin. What we remember of Adam and Eve, if we know the story, is that Adam and Eve were first of all in paradise. There they were so richly blessed. In paradise, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. They had beautiful fellowship with each other as husband and wife. The animals around them lived with them in perfect peace. And they were given every tree for food. We have to imagine their bellies were probably quite full. Nevertheless, Satan tempts them once. And they fall. How discouraging for humanity. People like us. Ever since we've lived in the wilderness, Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise. And in the wilderness, Satan tempts us all the time and we fail over and over again. 
But here we see Jesus begin his fight on our behalf, his fight for God's glory and for our very souls. And what we see of Jesus is that he leaves paradise. He leaves heaven above. And he comes down into the wilderness that Adam and Eve, in a sense, created. There, Jesus is alone. In our passage, he's driven deep into the wilderness in complete isolation. He's not surrounded by people. He's surrounded by wild animals. There, he's hungry. We read elsewhere, he fasted all 40 days. You imagine a 40-day fast. God must have been strengthening him somehow. More than that, in this time, Jesus was ruthlessly harassed. Satan himself met with Jesus in the wilderness and tried to make him fall, as we so often fall. Satan attacked Jesus relentlessly there. And we need to stop for a minute and consider this. Because it's easy for us to sort of downplay Jesus' temptation, even unintentionally, isn't it? Because Jesus was perfect, wasn't he? We've already heard he was sinless. He was God in the flesh. So how could his temptation be comparable? How could it stack up to ours? It seems like we're tempted every day, but Jesus doesn't really get what it's like to be me. What it's like to be you, to fight against sin and the devil each day again. But what we need to realize is Jesus does understand. We can see that in part in this passage. As Hebrews 4 verse 15 assures us, Jesus gets you and he knows all the temptations, all the trials you're going through. For we do not have a high priest, we read there. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus does sympathize in our weakness. And the temptation of Jesus, in his temptation, he let himself uh, face here for you and for me, is far worse than actually we can imagine. He can sympathize with us. I, I don't know if we can sympathize with him here. We need to realize how horrific this temptation would have been of Jesus in the wilderness. First of all, we need to remember, Satan isn't omnipresent. Sometimes I think we give him way too much credit. Satan can only be in one place at a time. I think we have to admit, he's probably not often focused on you or on me. We're small potatoes. From time to time, I'm sure. And we do hear that he's prowling around like a uh, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But nevertheless, here in this passage, something remarkable happens. Satan focuses on Jesus Christ alone for 40 days. We have to imagine Satan wasn't alone. He probably had an army of demons trying to break Jesus Christ, our Messiah, as well. Secondly, just because Jesus is stronger than you or I, that doesn't mean his temptation was easier. In fact, it means it was far worse. I love the way that C.S. Lewis explains this. C.S. Lewis says, and I quote, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know just how strong temptation is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving into it. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down in it. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later, or 40 days later, or a lifetime later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man 
who knows to the fullest extent what temptation means. Brothers and sisters, that means Jesus can sympathize with us. Sometimes we doubt him, but he can't. And our temptations and our trials, when Satan's whispering in our ear, trying to get us to doubt God, trying to get us to doubt his promises, is he really there? Jesus gets it. Jesus experienced the same thing. You can read about it in more detail in Mark 3 or in Luke. There we read that Satan attacked Jesus ruthlessly. He attacked his hunger. He attacked his exhaustion, his pain regarding sin. And more than that, he tried to cast doubts in his mind about who he was, who God was, if God really loved him, if God really was being honest that he was the Son of God. Because at that point, Jesus didn't look much like the Son of God. He didn't look much like the one who could defeat Satan. And Jesus, he does understand us in our weakness. And the beautiful words of Hebrews 4 remind us in our weakness when we go to him and admit our weakness, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get disappointed. He gets sympathetic. What a savior we have. Satan can attack us brutally sometimes, but Jesus gets it more than we'll ever know. So go to him in your weakness. And you'll find a high priest who understands, a high priest who sympathizes, a high priest who loves to help. That's literally why he came, remember. That's what he came to do, to destroy the works of the devil in our lives too. And in order to do so throughout his life, already at the beginning of his ministry, we see it so clearly, throughout his life, but especially at the end actually, Jesus went through hellish agony for you and me. We'll hear more about that next week. And for you and for me, Jesus was willing to stay in the wilderness for 40 days, being abused by Satan, a fallen angel. He stayed there for a new start for Israel, a new start for Adam and Eve, a new start for us. And finally, we see the devil lost, at least for now. But as you can see throughout Mark, this is just the beginning of the battle. The fight rages on throughout the rest of the book as well, until the end. Until the final baptism we heard about earlier, the crucifixion. There too, Jesus refused to give in, refused to make an end. Suffering immensely, Jesus stayed on the cross, even when people tried to get him to come off to prove who he was. There on the cross, it looked like Satan won. But really, this is just what God told us would happen. All the way back when Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden in Genesis 3 verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a new Adam would come and he would seem to be struck himself. But this would only be a bruise on his heel as he crushed the serpent's head. This, brothers and sisters, is how the gospel of Mark, how Jesus' ministry starts. It starts with an epiphany. I hope for you and for me, for all Mark's readers, this is an aha moment, a a wow moment, a oh That's who Jesus Christ is. That's who my Savior is. That's what he came to do. I hope it's that kind of a moment. As Mark says right in verse 1, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I was listening to Derek Thomas this past week, and he told a story about this passage. This passage being read in a seminary, and the professor asked the seminary students, so what do you think about it? What do you think is the the point uh, of this text for you and for me? And some students piped up. One said, it's about baptism. It's that we need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. 
Another said, no, no, it's that we need to be baptized by the Spirit. Another said, we should see that we need to spend time in isolation like Jesus did. Another one said, it's a story saying that we shouldn't spend time in isolation. And then Derek Thomas said, almost angrily, no. This story isn't about you. This story is about my Jesus, your Jesus, who he is, what he did to save you. This story is about reinforcements jumping into your battle, my battle in my place. Jesus coming and suffering and dying after identifying with us just to save us. This is about how Christ took a horrible baptism of judgment in our place. How he took a horrible temptation in the wilderness. So you didn't have to because you literally couldn't. Because I couldn't either. What a savior we have. What a savior we learn about in the gospel of Mark. Amen. Let's sing in response. Hymn 53, stanzas 1 and 2. proceed to the baptism of Noah and Nolan. We'll turn to the form for the baptism of infants in the back of the book of praise. It will also be projected. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. 
It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises to us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives, to which we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect and life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are, through baptism, called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust Him, to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy or continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they without their knowledge received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. The circumcision was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory for our comfort and to the upbuilding of the congregation, let us call upon his holy name in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you have punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood. But in your great mercy, saved and protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea, but led your people Israel through in the midst of the sea on the dry ground by which baptism was signified. We therefore pray that you, in your infinite mercy, will graciously look upon these, your children, and incorporate them by your Holy Spirit into your Son, Jesus Christ, so that they may be buried with him by baptism into death 
and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that they, following Christ day by day, may joyfully bear their crosses and cleave to Christ in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Grant that they, comforted in you, may leave this life, which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ your Son. All this we ask through him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, the the one and only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. I'd like to invite Jaden and Brittany and Terry and Kelsey and any kids up uh, for the baptism. Jaden, Brittany, Terry, Kelsey. Beloved in Christ the Lord, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose and not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you are to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin, and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ, and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized. Second, do you confess the doctrine of the Old and New Testament, summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church, as the true and complete doctrine of salvation. Third, do you promise as father and mother to instruct your child in this doctrine as soon as he is able to understand and to have him instructed therein to the utmost of your power. Jaden, what is your answer? Brittany, what is your answer? Terry, what is your answer? Kelsey, what is your answer? All right. I invite Noah to be baptized first. <clears throat> you remind me of his middle name? Sean. Sean. Noah Sean Kewick. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Nolan Avery Skitta. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's sing in response to the baptism, hymn 58, all three verses.
response to the baptism, let's go before our almighty God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty, merciful God and Father, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son, and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son that you will always govern these children by your Holy Spirit, that they may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, and may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that they thus may acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you have shown to them and to us all. May they live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king, and high priest, Jesus Christ, and valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May they forever praise and magnify you and your Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. Lord, may this be true for these little boys. The Lord, make it true also for the rest of us. We pray in particular now for the, uh, Noah and Nolan's parents. Lord, please equip Terry and Kelsey and Jaden and Brittany. Uh, equip them every day for this wonderful task that you've now called them to, or called them to once again, rather. As they raise up their children to know you and to trust you and to love you, grant that they too would come to know you and to love you more and more all the time, that they might just enjoy showing Christ in whatever they can, way they can, through their words, but also through their lives. Lord, may this be true for each of us as your uh, dear children. Lord, may we all come to begin to understand the, the depths of the knowledge of your love. Lord, we, as we celebrate now in welcoming these new little members uh, this week, and as we look forward also to uh, likely next week, uh, celebrating with Pat and Sharon's new little boy as well. Lord, we also remember that our congregation got a little bit smaller too. Lord, we'd also like to remember uh, this afternoon, uh, Ben Gelderman. Uh, Lord, thank you for Ben. Thank you for the way that you've uh, worked in his heart and in his life, and you've made him a blessing to our church. But Lord, uh, we thank you also that he was able to move safely to Edmonton. And we ask that you will continue to bless him there. Help him to be a blessing to his new church as he was a blessing in this church and help him himself be richly blessed by the preaching and the teaching and help him to be able to uh, get involved, uh, become a fruitful member of the body of Christ in Edmonton. Lord, please also uh, bless the body of Christ here in Sardis. Lord, please give us uh, a great heart for Christ and a great heart for one another. Help us look for ways that we can uh, build one another up and encourage one another to grow into the maturity and the fullness of Christ. We pray these things in his name alone. Amen. At this point in our worship service, we have the opportunity to share our gifts with the Lord who gave so graciously to us. Uh, this Sunday, or we have a collection for Manoah Manor, and then after the offering, we'll sing together the last two verses of hymn 53.
Just a quick reminder that the families will stay at the front of the church if you'd like to come and say your congratulations. And also, there will be a coffee social immediately after the service. We invite everyone to stay and enjoy some time of fellowship and some refreshments together. Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. So we have a nice practice in this church where when family has a baby baptized that we give them a book. Um, I think Jaden and Brittany got this one last time, so they get a different one today. And uh, it's just a book to help encourage you guys as parents to fulfill these promises that you've made today. Um, The one for you guys, Terry and Kelsey, is five things to pray for your kids uh, I've looked through it myself and, and read it, and it's pretty amazing how it leads you reading through Scripture for your kids um, and for yourselves even to live in the truth of these promises that we hear about again today. Um, so we wish you both all the best and uh, Lord's strength in your task.
Thank you.